This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Stacy, a graduate of Oxford University and recovered addict of 17 years, talks about her husband's death from a heroin overdose and her life from then onward. After the break, Scott tells his story of being a child actor starring in significant roles in The Toy with Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason, Kid Co., and the perennial Christmas favorite, A Christmas Story. Here are their stories. My name is Stacy Toy, and I am from northeastern Pennsylvania in the Pocono Mountains, right outside of Scranton. Essentially, I was raised, I was born and and raised on a farm, and it's in a rural part of northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, My parents, while they worked hard, my dad got hurt early on when we were kids, so my mom worked at a factory. Ironically, RCA, which I guess will come into play later on when they find when you find out more about me. But essentially, my fa- my parents, what they lacked in money, they made up for. And, you know, they said, you know, we can't pay for you to go and do all of these things like, you know, your friends and all these other people. So you'll have to find another way how to do it. So essentially, I, you know, took the route of scholarships and going to school and all of that. And in 2003, I found myself at Oxford University, uh, the number one school in the world in England, and I was addicted to pain pills, and I was taking about 70 to 100 a day just, you know, to focus and to, I mean, it's it's incredible. I have, like, the opposite effect, and so it helped me to focus, and I had been hiding that for years, but, you know, again, it was 17 years ago, so um, it was prior to the opioid epidemic. So when I asked for help, it was like, what do we do with her? Because, you know, I, I wasn't addicted. It wasn't heroin and it wasn't underage drinking. And, you know, it, like nobody knew like, oh, she's abusing her own prescription. Like this is like a new thing for people. Apparently it was back then. So needless to say, I did get through all of that. I will be clean 17 years this year, but Nine years ago, my husband, after getting out of the military, out of the Navy, he suffered with PTSD and depression. And ironically, nine years ago on Veterans Day, um, he died of a heroin overdose. So at 28 years old, I was a widowed single mom with two boys, ages six and four at the time. And, you know, it, it, it totally rocked my world. 
But I ended up finding out the person who actually shot my husband up. And I sent him a message and said I wanted to talk to him. Um, and at the time, he was in prison for a short stint, just a couple of months for something unrelated to this. So when he got out, he messaged me back. And the following day, I picked him up at the halfway house and I took him to lunch. And I basically said, you know, I know what this feels like because, you know, I'd been there. And at that point, you know, he had he had come from shooting 50 plus bags a day. And, you know, so it was like, I know what this feels like. So if you could be the become the, the husband to your wife and the father to your two sons that my husband can no longer be, I'll help you. I'll help you get your life back together. And so for like eight or nine months, you know, I would help him, whether it was just picking, picking him up and taking him to work, especially when it was like snowing real bad and cold, when, you know, he was in the halfway house and stuff, you know, to call me and all of that. So essentially now he's got his family back. He has his own business um, and he's been clean now at the end of this year. Since my husband will be gone nine years, it'll be nine years for him. And, you know, they're actually right now currently a prominent member of a film family is currently writing a film based off of, you know, the the events of my life, because during this opioid crisis, you know, I couldn't I couldn't save my husband, but uh, I wanted to make something good come from something bad. So not only was I able to prove the only thing more powerful, you know, is essentially love and forgiveness, but it sustained itself. Um, I haven't even seen that guy for probably over two years now, but I mean, every few months he drops me, you know, a message, just he's still telling me how grateful he is. And, you know, it's so glad that he was able to call me a friend and that he's got his life back and, you know, and all that. So, I mean, essentially, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how where life could take you and and you know all these people wanted me to you know send him back to prison and i said i was just thinking about it and it was like you know i remember being kicked when i was down because literally i was at the number one school in the world over at oxford university and you know i went and asked for help and everything got ripped out from underneath me and i was labeled the drug addict and the failure and i was never going to like succeed and you know and it was like my dad and you know my mom but my dad's you know guidance and stuff of just being positive and whatnot and it was like you know it, it's just funny how life kind of works out but I'm excited to you know pursue this you know this new route of, of having a film based off of my life with these events especially during the opioid crisis because if you can't save people like you know at least you can have the different perspective and mentality to help save yourself um, and, and having like a positive outlook and just, you know, and if you are going through it, having examples to show that it's actually, you know, proof that you can get through this, you can do this, you know, and hopefully it's a, it's a little bit of hope for everybody because I think that's what you need. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, congratulations on your 17 year uh, so sobriety. Uh, Thanks. That, it's the awesome. end of this year. I'm excited. It's yeah. October 27th. <laughs> Woohoo. I'm, I'm so sorry that you went through that with your husband. Uh, now, you were already into your sobriety when he died. Uh, mm -hmm. Was that something, was his using not, you know, was it something you weren't aware of or did you know yeah. that he was using? No, I didn't. Well, I knew that he was using, but it was never intravenous drugs. And that's the thing that was so surprising. That April was, that was his birthday um, and he didn't want to be part of the quote unquote 27 club. So he had been battling, you know, he, he wanted to turn 28 in rehab just to make sure that he could make it because 
you know, he was seeing all these doctors and they just kept putting him on like, you know, Xanax and, uh, you know, Ativan and Ambien and, you know, Celexa and Seroquel. And then he was on lithium for a long time. And he had it. I mean, it was like literally like just throwing all these drugs at him. And then we get him off all of these things. And then he goes to rehab and they pull him out of rehab, you know, out of 17 days it was in. You know, it was more so like, oh, well, he, we're putting him out on good behavior. And it's like, dude, no, we paid for 28. You know what I mean? Like, so I think there's a real, you know, difference thing in this in the system. But I also was, you know, doing a lot of research. And essentially it's, you know, when you go to rehab, you know, they say that the rate for people to come out and to actually stay sober is three percent and the rate of people not going into rehab and still coming out of it and staying sober is three percent so it was like you know i tried all of the same things and that's where i had to learn that you can't save everybody and it has to be for you and so that's why i tried to reach out to that other guy and it's you know that other guy i'd known about him because you know we had all kind of grown up together you know my husband and i graduated together he grew up a mile down the road we've been friends since we were five years old um and there was four guys it was my husband this guy that shot my husband up and two other guys and the guy that shot my husband up was the worst of all four of them and right now he's the only one left alive all three of the other ones died from you know overdoses over a period of time and it's like i mean every funeral we went to it was you know, the other ones after it, the other two. And it was just like, he would just like ball his eyes out and just be so grateful, you know, to be alive and stuff. And that makes me feel good because even if he took, you know, something from me, you know, or took my husband's life, I, you know, I was able to give him back his. And the more I found out about him, it was like his father was in the Hells Angels, tried to kill his mother. So he was just like bounced around his whole life. And sometimes that's all people need is like people label them as the bad kids and stuff. And like sometimes all they need is just somebody to actually care about them, you know, in, in a bad moment. So, <laughs> yeah, something I've, I've noticed from people who are in recovery is that they're always willing to help others. Uh, mm-hmm. seem, that seems to be a kind of built in response to uh, I guess because because you you went through it, you can relate to what the other person is going to go through and will go through, so you're able to help them. And I imagine that's really a huge sense of uh, accomplishment and you know being proud that uh, you you can serve in some way uh, the community that you're a part of. Yes, absolutely. I know it's one of the steps. I was never. I can't do like the twelve step stuff. Like I'm not the normal. Like I never went to rehab. But I, you know, I had a, my father, you know, was the one he didn't want it on my record back then because I did have so many accomplishments to that point. But every single day I was at the doctor's office getting tested, get my blood drawn. You know, I mean, they were like one screw up and you're going in. And so it was like, okay, I, cause I wanted help at that point in time. It was like something the size of a pencil top eraser was running my life and it was bad. I mean, the last week of my finals over at Oxford, I ran out of pills for the first time because I never needed or bought them. You know, I was getting like 6,000 a month just from all my doctors because like I said, back then it wasn't like a thing yet. And of course she's going to the number one school in the world. She's smart. She, you know, she's not going to do anything stupid. And it was like, haha, feeding you right into my hands. You know what I mean? And then when I ran out for the first time, it had been years. And so it was like, Oh my God, like my eyelashes hurt. I was sick as a dog. Like you can't put that in a textbook. Like no, nobody could read 
about your eyelashes hurting and actually understand how freaking painful it really is. You know what I mean? But, you know, like you were saying before, you know, I am, you know, a Christian. I, I love Jesus, but I say the F word a lot and I apologize. But, you know, in, like I say, you could take God out of it and the principle is still the same. But in Second Corinthians, it says God chooses people to suffer so they in turn can help others who suffer. I mean, even in Buddhism, you've got the Bodhisattva. I mean, like you have all these different things for different religions, but it does make sense. It sucks going through it, that's for sure. But at the same time, you know, I can only do so much. And that's it is a sense of amazingness when people come through. But there's so many other people that like, you know, it is in their hands and they have to want to be better. Like, I wished I could have just shook my husband. And now I'm like, oh, I understand now, like what my parents were trying to do to me. Like, oh, my God, like, you know, come on, you're going like you just follow me. Come on. You know, it's like I have the right answer. And you're just like, no, I'm going to go the other direction. I know exactly what that was because I did it, but it was like trying to, like, I didn't understand it from, you know, the other side of the coin. So yeah, it was definitely a learning experience. But like I said, I wanted to make something good come from something bad. So I thought I, I'm a, I like to think outside of the box. Like, in fact, when I say think outside of the box, like screw the box. If you want to make a triangle, build a triangle. If you want to be a tuna fish, like I, I tell my friends, like, I'll help support you to be the best damn tuna fish you want to be. You know, screw the box if you don't want to think like everyone else. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's really interesting. The the aspect of being in recovery and helping somebody else, uh, and, and taking just you know the, I don't know, being taking a, a, a control of of your life at the same time. Now, uh, the the movie that's going to be made about your life, is that based off of a script you wrote or a book or is there something No. Well, there is something in the works being written right now. And like I said, she's the person that's doing it comes from a very prominent family in the industry. Um, and she's, you know, won different awards and stuff, uh, like huge ones like Emmys and stuff. And I'm super stoked. But she, you know, heard my story and essentially was like, wow, we need to turn this into a film. And, you know, at first it was like a documentary, but, you know, I don't like all the attention of stuff. Like, so, you know, she they kind of sold me on the idea of maybe like a blindside movie, you know, almost like Sandra Bullock, where it's like she's not necessarily the hero, but like, you know, the other guy's the hero, because to me. You know, I'm not the hero for doing this. I'm just living it. And it's been almost, you know, 20 years that we've been, you know, from start to, to finish here. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the message that I want to portray. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so any timetables on that? You know, is, is well, we're it... working on it now. So um, I'm hoping maybe by like next spring or summer or something that the script will be done. And I've, we've already been you know talking to some even people at some major studios and stuff like that but i'm just gonna make sure that i take the right deal because i live through this damn it and i'm not gonna sell it all out you know <laughs> and i know how the industry works now that i'm a producer so it'll be fun to see where it comes out but i mean it's nice because we do have you know some big names of people that you know are interested and even different huge bands and stuff that want to do songs like for and so it's oh my gosh it's just i'm gonna pull out all the stops from all the people that i know and i've worked with and met you know throughout just working in this industry and stuff i mean i go to the grammy awards every year so for the last seven years i've been at the grammys and you know just figure all of the you know uh, label parties and the friends and family parties and you know all these different events and stuff so it's like I literally know 
you know, a ton of people. And if I don't know them myself, somebody I know knows them. So I'm literally like one degree from just about anybody and everybody in the world. And that includes like royalty and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of crazy how my life's turned out. <laughs> well, when the film is finally produced and is getting ready to release, uh, why don't you come back on the show and talk about a little bit more about the book? I think, I mean, about the movie. Uh, I think it'd be interesting. And I know my listeners would want to hear an update on what you're doing with your life. Of course. And then I'm going to, once the uh, film and stuff comes out and whatnot, I did keep journals of everything because I went to school for journalism. So, you know, everything was in like a diary and all of that. So I told them I wanted to release all of them like as is because I think it's important to even note like my change of penmanship because when you're going through like withdrawal and so it's like every day my, my handwriting was different and it was just like I have anxiety, you know, and you're like, draw it really big and you know and I think the only way to go into it is like you know airing all of you know the skeletons out of my closet because it's like then we can what can you come at me with you know like I want to tell you everything because I want to be I want to be that person that I didn't have at three o'clock in the morning when you have nobody to talk to you know like I want to be something that's on TV or at least something tangible in your hand that you can read and relate to and it just gives you you know a little bit of hope to at least make it to the next day you know what i mean so i want to do everything that i didn't have <laughs> yeah yeah i understand uh let's talk a little bit about your studio what kind of things do you do in the studio and are you there every day working with people and producing stuff or uh is it just something that you're a partner in i well i my business partner mark Dannenbaum jr um he's the reason why i'm even a producer because he's the one who told me i was a producer so I've been working with 25-8 Studios for five years now. I, prior to that, for almost 11 years, I was a live broadcast news director in the control room. Um, and I've worked, you know, I directed America's highest rated local newscast in the country. You know, I did big events like the London 2012 Olympics. And I've worked in about 47 countries with almost every one of the major networks. So that was fun and dandy and I got out of that business after the I helped basically perfect the automation systems that went across the United States and you know that puts control rooms down from 12 people to two. So it was like, well, I built and helped perfect my replacement with the you know with the head of engineering that invented the program and you know we we did that and so I was like, well, I'm going to have to find a new you know I always wanted to do that I did it I did it on a big you know scale you know for my own mind and I was like well what's next so Mark my business partner he's like you're you're a producer and I'm like no I'm not because I only knew what TV news live TV news producing was and I'm like I am not one of them because I had to tell them what to do you know like and so he's like no 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 and then when he finally like he hired me to do um, a commercial for him um, and it was the first commercial we worked with together and it ended up winning an, our first American Advertising Award out of our 13 that we have now. And, you know, essentially, you know, he's the reason why I'm even in into this industry. So I do have to thank him. But 25-8 Studios was his uh, idea. He started it 10 years ago, 10 years in August. And he just took a chance and believed in me. But I am on set whenever we, you know, film because as the producer, like I'm the one who's doing all the permits or all of the, you know, liability stuff and being there for the insurance and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm very, you know, hands on with all of that and putting everything together and even just being on set, you know, everybody wants me there because I know, 
you know, so much. I've done so much even research and, and worked with so many different people, as has my business partner. Before doing all of this, he was out in Los Angeles and, you know, like he worked the first two seasons of Sons of Anarchy. He was on, you know, The, the Office, House, 24, Heroes, Scrubs. Like he's worked on like all of these major shows and he was out in L.A. for years and was just kind of like, I'm going to come back and, you know, we're, I'm going to start a, a, a film company here. Um, and then him and I kind of linked up and then that's when things kind of really started to grow. And now we have associate offices in L.A., Orlando, Atlanta and London. But our main facility is here in the Pocono Mountains in Scranton, where the office, you know, was was the background for. And yeah, we have like a 14,000 square foot facility. We've got a psych wall. We've got a top of the line recording studio in there. We've got the editing suites in our offices and we've got, you know, the photography studio over there. And 7,000 square feet of it is on the side because we're, we're attempting to get some grants in the area since now they have like for the casinos and stuff that are in the area. Um, they have grants and stuff that, that we can qualify for to get some money. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna put like a soundstage in there because we have like the biggest psych wall, that big green screen, or we could make it white or we can make it blue, whatever. Um, and it's it's like the big one that looks like it bends in the middle, so it's huge. We have the biggest psych wall in between New York City and Philadelphia. Um, and we're also the only production company in the Northeast listed on the Pennsylvania Film Office website. So. You know, we're, we're, we're making our way, and that was only, you know, within five years, so not so bad. <laughs> so for anybody who's uh, who's listening and interested in finding out more about your studio and what goes on there, uh, you have a website, and I believe you, you have an email uh, mm-hmm. that I'll put in the, uh, the show notes. So, yes. So that my, mm-hmm. my listeners can go to the show notes and find links to 25.8 Studios. Thank you. <laughs> so why don't you talk a little little bit about your podcast. Now, I know you said before we started recording that it's not something you do often, but uh, go ahead and talk about what it is you do and, and what's your podcast based on. Yeah, sure. Um, so the podcast was actually the an, another brainchild of my business partner, Mark. One of my clients came in from Compton. Uh, he's a YouTuber. His name is Pyro, Jarrell Pyro Johnson. Demi Lovato just shared one of his new things and stuff and it had like 12 million views. It's insane. But anyways, so he was coming in about two years ago and Mark's like, you know, I really want to get this podcast up and going because he had been, he had done another podcast previously and they had to end it. And so he's like, you know, I really just want to get back into it. He's like, would you be my co-host? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so he's like, oh, bring, bring, let's bring guests and let's do you know, your, your client or something. I said, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. And, you know, we, we went, it wasn't live when we recorded on our side, but my client, he put it up on live on his different social media platforms. And there was like 16,000 people like viewing it, which was fantastic. So like, you know, we only have about, like I said, maybe like 15 or 20 or 25 podcast total right now, but it's the 258 Studios podcast. It's on iTunes. It's, you know, on Stitcher and, and all of those, uh, all of the platforms. And so you could see some of the, some of the work and stuff we did. Some are serious, some aren't. And we do have another one coming out very shortly with Jack O'Halloran because my business partner is a huge, huge geek when it comes to movies like of that caliber. And so I actually called him and, and was like, hey, I was talking to Jack O'Halloran. and do you want to have him on the show? And he was like, oh my God. So w- this was the first one that we had to do 
not in studio, so on Zoom. Um, and we're trying to find, you know, like we were talking about before, uh, a way to make it sound good and whatnot so, we th- so that we can do more because as of right now, everybody has always come into studio. I mean, we've had people drive from New York. We've had people fly out from LA. You know, I mean, it's, we just had a ton of people that would just, you know, have no problem coming and working at our studio, especially for other projects because, you know, even though we're in Scranton, you know, our recording studio has done stuff for like the TV show Pitch on Amazon and Outsiders on WGN. And, you know, so it's like we're, we're constantly working on different stuff for different platforms, you know, whether it's Netflix or whatever. And, and nobody has any idea, which is kind of the, the best part. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually talked to Jack O'Halloran from my podcast. Now, for the listeners who don't remember, he is a an actor, a boxer, and uh, the son of a gangster. <laughs> so it's quite, yes, there's, there's that was the best part. That, that was the best part, too, is because Scranton, um, if you saw The Irishman, right below Scranton is Pittston, and that's where Russell Buffalino lived. And so Frank Sheeran and Russell Buffalino, all of that stuff and, you know, the Hoffa stuff happened here, right here in Northeast PA. So we had a great podcast talking about his dad and his you know, memories of coming to Scranton and, and, you know, being, you know, having to collect. And I mean, it was insane because it is like stuff that's in, you know, my backyard and he boxed in Scranton because he was from Philly. So it was super cool. I mean, it's non, you know what I mean? And like he was in Dragnet, like that stuff is super, super awesome. But then to hear, you know, his past stories and like know people that we know, but they're, you know, infamous, like, and portrayed on the Irishman. And of course he comes on and says it's BS. And I'm like, I knew it, you know? <laughs> so no, that was, that was like even cooler. So what, uh, what movies do you have in the works now or films that you're working on other than, uh, the, your life story? Well, right now, currently on streaming is hundred acres of hell. It is a horror film. It stars WWE superstar, Gene Snitsky and, uh, clerks and Kevin Smith view askew family fame. He was in all of Kevin's movies is Ernie O'Donnell. And just a fun little tidbit. You know, my father told me when I was growing up that nobody was going to come and knock on my door. So I had to go out into the world and get it. And so, 100 Acres of Hell was my very first film. It's like I said, it just came out because it takes years sometimes <laughs> to get through distribution and all that. But anyways, and so when you watch it, half the film was filmed on my parents' property um, in the backyard. So it's like, you know, when somebody tells you that nobody's going to come and knock on your door, make sure you bring a whole production team back home <laughs> when you do get the chance, you know? <laughs> now, now you oh. mentioned in your, in your bio that you are... Um, You've been selected as Woman of the Month or Woman of the Year. Uh, can you tell a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm sorry that I can't remember exactly what it was oh, I've for. Been so, but, I'm, yeah. I'm picked up for a bunch of different stuff. <laughs> like While I'm super honored, it's funny because I don't really like, not that I don't care. It's just, you know, awards are just that, you know, like they're just, you know, I can make up an award right now and, and give it to you. I always wanted one. And then once I got one, I was like, I, well, that's the problem is I didn't get one. The first time, you know, I ever got an award um, was that commercial because, you know, production never gets the awards. News gets the awards. Newsrooms get the awards. But production department never gets the awards, even though, you know, I was like the one helping direct the Sandy Hook shooting and all that kind of stuff. I would never get an award because I'm not in the news department. 
But then the first year I worked with my business partner, Mark, there was like 11 awards or something at the at the first award show I went to and we ended up with 10. It was incredible. We needed a box and everybody was mad at us. And then it's like, well, I can't say I have 10 now. It's like we have 23 awards with all these different things. And it's like, no, it's just it's just bragging. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so it's like, oh, I can't say that. Um, I pulled up my thing. So I did get honored at um, the House of Lords, which is Parliament in London, two marches ago for being a, you know, extraordinary alumni or something from Oxford University. I was picked as Northeast woman and most distinguished alumni and who's who in America and all that kind of jazz. <laughs> I'm in Europe's largest entrepreneur society, which is over at Oxford, which is really cool because now they actually invite me to the um, investor conventions with all these like pre-approved angel investors that want to like, you know, give to people at Oxford. Unfortunately, this year it was virtually because, it, but how do you meet people virtually for asking, you know, people for money? I hate. I like being in person and, you know, just having that, you know, connectability because everybody, anybody could look good in a picture and anybody could sound good on a piece of paper. But if you're, if you're an a-hole when you meet you, you know, like that doesn't, it doesn't sell at all. So, yeah, I mean, I've been in, in a bunch of all this stuff and I've gotten all these, you know, titles and, and awards and stuff. And I'm very proud of them. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm very proud of them they don't make me you know being a mom does and and you know I haven't been remarried at all so it's just me and my two sons they're gonna be 16 and 14 um, at the end of the year you know and, and running a, a successful business and that's what's most important I think in life especially all the stuff I've gone through <laughs> so well congratulations on raising two boys by yourself what are their goals I mean do you know what they what they're kind of looking for to do with their lives or is it still too early for that no they they do it's really cool um well my oldest son he is sassy and witty like sometimes I don't know if I should slap him across the face or write it down like and so nine times out of ten I just write it down because I'm like that was funny you know like the other day he said something at like we were putting something together and I had to like jump just to get it in and he's like jump and I'm like I can't jump because you've been jumping to conclusions your whole life what do you mean you can't jump and I'm like what you know what I mean like so it's like funny but so him and his his brother uh, his brother more so both of them come and they're on sets with me you know they've they've starred and made some money in some of my commercials just even as extras and even for 100 acres of hell you know my youngest son was holding the light and then like the um, you know, they have little pieces of see-through, uh, like the gels for the lights and stuff. And he would be moving it back and forth to make it look like it was like the, the fire in the campfire scenes. And he really loves just coming and being with me and being a producer. My son, um, all of his papers at school basically say he likes special effects makeup. And, and from what he's told me, because he's hung out with, you know, the makeup artists and stuff on set or a casting director and it's so funny because my kids go to the same school I did growing up and it's very it's very rural up here it's still it's just a public school because you know I'm not a I don't care I figured I turned out okay you know and all my friends now are their teachers because you know I'm old enough now so I could blame them if they're if they're not doing things right you know and so it's it was funny to see my son's high school guidance counselor um, when he came in and said you know I want to be a casting director and they're like well, you know, you shouldn't, you should probably think of something, you know, that you can actually do and focus on. And he was just like, do you know who my mother is? And I was like, oh, you did not do that. And it was funny because 
the principal then came in and was like, you know, his the principal's wife is my son's godmother. So they were like, oh yeah, she if if anybody is you know any kid is gonna do this, it's gonna be him because he's gonna have access to whatever he wants. So just let him let him go. <laughs> so I mean that that was really cool because now my son gets to have an opportunity that you know otherwise he would have been told no. You know, so I'm like, well. Don't tell them no. I'm like, if anybody else wants that opportunity, have them call me. Like, I'll be their fake, you know, parent or mentor or, you know, whatever. It's just the point now. And actually, the first Toyota commercial that we did, because we've done a lot of Toyota commercials, especially for the Olympic Games or the Paralympic Games in Korea, and you know, we've done a couple years of、um, Super Bowl commercials. But the one that won us our first award, the American Advertising Award, is actually my son.、Uh, my youngest son is starring in it. My other son is in the background of it, and so you know they've been a part of all of this stuff, and it makes me happy. But that first commercial, we also filmed it at the elementary school that we all went to,、um, and my kids go, like were attending at the time, and、um, they got to invite their class and their you know their kids and the parents and stuff, and to have the opportunity. So it was really nice, and and it was just super, like just super cool to be able you know to to film there and to give all these other kids like、uh, an opportunity and and to have my kids have an opportunity and to be seen and it was like one of the most powerful moving commercials. So I'm excited about that, and they are too. So I'm just bringing them along for the ride unless they unless they say otherwise because if they want to be. You know, they want to go and and work. You know, they work on the tractors. If they end up wanting to go into automotive, hey, whatever you want. I just want my kids to be happy, and you know, I'm just doing what makes me happy. So I just want them to be happy. Yeah, that's、uh, for me. That's to know something like that is irritating for me because I, I don't think that a guidance counselor or anybody in a school should ever tell a child no. Exactly. You can't do something. I mean, that's just not right. And it says a lot about your son that he stood his ground and said, "No, wait. You don't understand. I'm doing this." I told、this. you he's sassy. I told you he's sassy. <laughs> okay, so you're you're involved with music as well as film industry and producing things like that. What are some of your uh, musical uh, endeavors? So I'm currently working with.、Um, he's been dubbed the future of blues, and he's like in the top forty. He's worked with. He's played with everybody from BB King to Eric Clapton, and even opened for the Supremes and the Temptations for the last 35 years. His name is Clarence Spady.、Um, you can look him up and on YouTube and all that. He's he, first things that come up is when he was on the Artie Lang show and. You know, a bunch of his different performances. He's incredible. He's been clean now,、um, and he had a tumultuous, like, 35-year battle with heroin and hard drugs. And last year, his son actually died of an overdose. So he's now clean, and we're we're telling his story because he has just been, man, he's he's done the most amazing stuff in blues. And been with everyone, and so everybody knows him. That's in blues. It's it's crazy. So telling his story is not only an amazing project, but it, it's it's like doubly amazing for me because I'm helping him tell the story. And it's like we have so many similarities because now him and I have made it to the other side. But he lost his son last year, and I lost my husband. But it's like he's getting a second chance at life, and so I get to help him, even though he's in his later, you know, fifties. Um, and I'm only 36, you know. Helping him to get his life back and stuff has been so awesome. And in fact, he's supposed to be coming over tonight because he wants to play the guitar <laughs> in the moon down by my pond. 
So so check Clarence Beatty out. He has the song called Just Between Us. He's Grammy uh, nominated. He lost that year to B.B. King, which is not, you know, a, a sad thing to say either. So check that out because probably by next spring or summer or something, you know, you'll be seeing his documentary. They have a, a ghostwriter following him around to do a book. Um, and we also have a whole new album that he is going to be putting down his future of blues music um, that's just for him and uh, from him. And I'm super excited about that. So keep, keep you know, stay tuned with that because that'll probably come out way before my 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 life one will. <laughs> this okay, one's more it, like next year. <laughs> is, is Clarence a vocalist as well? Does he sing? On yes. The, okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's blues so guitar good. Singing. We had yeah. Huddy Ledbetter. He's, he was from here, and that's, uh, I don't know if you heard of him, but he was real influential uh, blues back, that's back, awesome. in the, back in the 30s. Uh, so he's pretty big around here. People like Jack White uh, mm-hmm. with uh, White mm-hmm. Stripes. White came, Stripes, came, yep. Yeah, he came through just to visit his grave, and, and other, other really good uh, guitarists are, are really big on Huddy Ledbetter. But, wow. I wonder if Clarence would even like have like a story or something or be influenced by something. I know he would love to come on and do your show sometime for sure. <laughs> cool. And you, yes. might want to ask, you might want to interview him too for yours and, and ask him if he knows Huddy. Yes, I absolutely will. Trust me. I But hey, if you want to interview him too, you can. Because like I said, our show, I love our show and it's fantastic. But it's more if they're like, I mean, we haven't put one out probably since november of last year and now we're gonna have another one so i mean that was more like the covid thing um so we'll see if we can put more out but the ones that we have on there are fun like with jesse snyder um d snyder's son from twisted sister he's like one of my best friends he's actually coming to visit and stay with me this weekend and you know we get together with clarence and then like it's crazy it's in my backyard like people come in my backyard that like are grammy nominated and like on tv and like oh my gosh it's just insane to me why don't you go ahead and and tell us how people can get in touch with you and i'll put all this in the show notes but go ahead and say what your social media is and then how people can can contact you Sure thing. Um, so i'm at stacy toy s t a c e y t o y at uh, Instagram and that's my name on Facebook and it's my name on um, LinkedIn um, and my picture is the same for all of them and make sure that you don't forget the E because there's other Stacy toys and a lot of them have been getting like messages being like okay I'm gonna have you on to interview in like an hour and then they're like whoops wrong Stacy after I contact the person but you'll be able to tell it's the same picture as my IMDB and that's on there too and as well as 258 studios all one word both on facebook and instagram and then like you said our website be on the bottom and that's the number 258studios.com hey what's up guys it's chris Ristali of breaking the fourth wall if you enjoy our show you can find it on YouTube, just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment, or just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And also, you can find us on all the social medias. Just look for Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And I will catch you on the other side. This is Scott Schwartz. I live in Simi Valley, California, about 25, 30 minutes outside of L.A. And uh, I started acting. I was eight and a half years old, and it wasn't something that I instantly pursued. It was something that somebody else said, hey, 
you know, you're very outgoing. I'm producing a commercial. Would you like to do it? That's kind of how it started. And I did a Yoohoo chocolate drink commercial with Yogi Berra. And I was on my way. People like me, keep going, get an agent, do all those things. Did Off-Broadway in 79, did Broadway in 1980. Uh, I was in the biggest non-musical flop in the history of Broadway at the time. I did a show called Frankenstein at the Palace Theater with two-time Academy Award winner Diane Wiest, John Glover. The director was Tom Moore, who did Grease on Broadway. And then it was, you know, about a year, about a year later uh, when I was cast to do the movie The Toy, you know, with Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason and Dick Donner, Richard Donner, the director, and Ray Stark, the producer. You know, that definitely changed the whole scheme of things as far as life, career, what are you going to do, how's it going to go? I mean, having a chance to work with them for you know, four solid months was was just a great experience. I was a movie buff to begin with. So I was a fan of movies, not really the silent era, but early sound on up. Gleason knew George M. Cohan, you know, who James Cagney played in Yankee Doodle Dandy, one of my favorite movies. So we would, I would ask him questions about George M. Cohan, and then he'd say, do you know how to shoot pool? And then he taught me how to shoot pool. And of course I knew the hustler. So I mean, Gleason was was nothing but great to me, but I was a Smokey and the Bandit junkie, so I would do Gleason to Gleason. I would do him to him, and he thought it was a riot because I was all of five foot tall. I wasn't even five foot tall. I was about four six, and I weighed like fifty four pounds when I started. So doing Buford T. Justice, he really got a kick out of that. How old were you? Thirteen. Uh, I had my fourteenth birthday while we were shooting. I mean Richard Pryor, from the moment I met him. You know, I said, hello, Mr. Pryor. He said, oh, no, no, no. You just called me Richard, Rick, Dick. I don't care what you call me. Anything but Mr. Pryor, that's my dad. He loved B-Westerns. He loved Lash LaRue, who was the guy from the 50s. He was the master of the bullwhip. And I knew who he was, and Richard couldn't believe it. And we just started this amazing friendship. You know, two guys from completely different backgrounds. You know, he grows. He grew up in a whorehouse in Peoria, Illinois. And I grew up, you know, low middle income family, Jewish kid from Jersey. But we found common ground in, in our likes and our dislikes and our want of uh, gaining knowledge and, and not being, you know, uninformed. He, he was very studious, reading books, underlining, loved to play video games. We played video games, went to amusement parks, went to the movies, you know, gave me a lot of good advice. You know, the Richard Pryor was my muse, my mentor. There wasn't a question I couldn't ask him anything, you know. And, of course, I'm shooting. I'm, I'm 14. I was pre-puberty. And he's teaching me about girls. You know, you're getting, you know, female lessons from Richard Pryor. How are you going to top this stuff? He just, the impact that he had, I had no idea what it would be while we were shooting. But it was the after effects, you know, people going, oh, my God, you worked with the legend, the icon, the 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 act, the comedian's comedian, the godfather, Richard Pryor. And, I, you know, and of course, then, you know, a couple of minutes, a couple of months after the film had come out, I was already shooting a Christmas story. But Christmas story for the first 15, 16 years 
it was just kind of a cult thing and it kind of kept quiet and there wasn't that massive fan base. So, I mean, meeting athletes, other celebrities, it was all about Richard. You know, it, it, it truly, truly made my life much better than probably would have been how I had I not worked with him and not been the way that I am and the way that he is. You know, you know, getting uh, again, you know, I did that film and then I do another film called Kid Co for 20th Century Fox, which I'm actually most proud of doing from the job that I did in it. And then a couple months later, I, I start shooting a, a Christmas story, which is this little movie that has no big stars, no special effects, no nothing. MGM didn't even want to make it. They seriously didn't even want to make the movie. And the only reason why it got made was Bob Clark loved Gene Shepard, loved the write, loved his writing, loved his you know being on television, loved everything about the guy, and he fell in love with this story about Ralphie and the BB gun, you know. And um, he had done another film that most people at this point know called Porky's on a shoestring budget. It made at the time like 102 or 104 million dollars at the box office, which was unheard of for a movie that costs like 1.5 or 2 million and they wanted him to make Porky's 2 and he held out he said I will make that movie right after I do a Christmas story they said what's that they said this other movie I want to do they said no 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 let's do Porky's first and then you can do it he said oh no no I'm doing this first because he knew he had all the power and all the juice to get it done so we, we do Christmas story and I mean during the filming he was watching the dailies, which are the, the, the stuff you shoot the day before. They, they process it, and then you watch, then they watched it. And he was already editing Christmas Story by the second or third week of shooting. He was editing it so he could get it done as fast as possible so he could start doing Porky's Part 2. You know. So you were uh, the, the boy who stuck his tongue to the pole in the uh -huh. store. Yeah, okay. Yep. Which was not what I thought originally. When I got cast, uh, I didn't read anything. I went in. It was literally the week after the toy opened in the theaters. And Bob Clark had seen it. And he just wanted to meet me. That's all he wanted to do. So at the time I was living in New Jersey with my folks, we went into New York for the audition. And Bob's like, oh, it's so wonderful. You could make it. It's nice to meet you. And we chit-chatted for maybe five or six minutes. He says, you know, I didn't have lunch. You, you want a hot dog? You're asking a kid in New York, do you want to go have a hot dog? Absolutely. Oh, he went out, had a hot dog, and a Pepsi, okay, fine, or a Yoo-Hoo, whatever I had. And we talked for a few minutes, came back upstairs. He said, I got to tell you, it was a pleasure to meet you. I said, do you want me to read anything? He said, no, no, that's okay. I'm, I, I, I've seen enough to know what I, I got to do. Okay, fine. And we were, my dad and I were like seven blocks from my agent's office. We walked up there. She said, what did you do? I said, well, we talked and had a hot dog. She said, he called already. You got the movie. That was it. That's, that was my audition for Christmas Story. They sent me the script, not telling me what role I was going to be playing. So I'm figuring I'm Ralphie because I had the lead in the toy and I had the lead in Kid Co. So I read the script. I study the script. I got Ralphie part down. Okay, fine. And we get all the way to Toronto to the table reading. And we sit down and Bob goes, this is great. Okay, Peter, you're Ralphie. You're RD. You're Schwartz. Zach, you're Scott Farkas. Scott, you're going to play Flick? I said, I'm thinking in my head, Flick? I turned around and looked at my father. He's shaking his shoulders. I don't know. So I looked through the script real quick. 
And I know I was hired to work six weeks, at least six weeks. I had 16 lines of dialogue. So I had a posting note in front of me there for notes. And I wrote 16 lines, six weeks, vacation. And I handed it to my father. You know, funny. and yeah. And then after I said to Bob, I said, Bob, are you sure about this? You know, I've done the lead tour. And he said, oh, no, no, no. You're flick. You're going to be great. It's not the size of the role, but what you make out of it, and you're going to be great. And little did we know, he was, uh, you know, a fortune teller. Well, how does that impact your your career this far? I mean, because it became, uh, you know, it exploded and became just this really big Christmas movie that plays on stations for 24 hours a day during the Christmas season. How has that impacted you uh, today? Well, it, I am who I am. I still sort of have the same face. I gained a few pounds because I'm much older. It's notoriety. You know, it's not like I was ever, you know, typecasted in that role because it doesn't really take off popularity-wise until, you know, 97 and the movie's 14 years old already. That's when the marathon started and, like, merchandising and all that stuff doesn't start till around 2002 or 2003. That's almost 20 years before merchandise comes out on the movie. Never heard of before. Never, nothing. You, there's no way you're going to figure this stuff out. That's something. Um, I, I, I have many friends who live by that movie. That's the, you know, their Christmas season is not complete until they've watched uh, a Christmas, Christmas story. Yeah, yeah listen, Christmas. I mean, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing, as they say. It is a beautiful thing. I was a part of an ensemble cast, and you know, people have their different favorite scenes in the movie and all that. And yeah, you know, it's it's basically the leg lamp, the BB gun, and the kid with the tongue stuck on the pole, and then you get the the bunny suit. Yeah. You know, Ralphie in the bunny suit. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about Kid Co? Kid Co was based on a true story of a brother and three sisters who were in San Diego County, California. They started their own horse manure business. Their father and mother owned stables. So they started a fertilizing company using the cow manure or the horse manure with hay and oats. And they started fertilizing places, and they didn't get the proper permits and all those kinds of things. The city went after them. The state went after them. Um, but at the end of the day, the, kid, the kids ended up being multimillionaires because the community really got behind them. And uh, so I played, you know, the brother who's the instigator of the whole thing, the wheeler dealer instigator, which was great for me. I, I loved it. I mean, I'm in 98% of the film. You know, I worked every day. I worked six days a week. I worked overtime almost every day, which again, in California, you can't do it with kids, but you can pretty much in every other state. Maybe not New York now, I'm not sure. But for sure, you couldn't do it. But you could do it back then in Arizona where we shot. And I mean, I was working anywhere from 10 to 14 hour days, six days a week. And I came to work prepared every day. I pounded it. The toy was opening in the theaters on December 10th, and we were supposed to shoot until December 20th or 21st. And I told the producers, who were David Niven Jr. and Frankie Blondes. They only had 35 to 40 years experience, each of them. And I'm trying to explain to them, after doing one movie, that I know how movies get done and we can make this faster. Well, they both thought I was nuts. They really did. They, they basically said, okay, you know, if, if we're going to have a problem, if we're not going to get done on time, we're going to have a problem. We can let you go home now. We'll hire somebody else. And I said, oh, no, we're going to get it done. 
They threw me out of the room and they talked to my father. My dad's like, listen, he just did four months with Pryor and Gleason. He truly believes he's Secretariat. He believes he's Godzilla. Just get on my kid's back. Trust me, he's going to ride you to the finish line. They thought my father was nuts. So they called me back in the room and they said, okay, you, you, you seem to that you know what you want to do here. So what do you want to do first? And I said, honestly, I said, I looked at the shooting schedule and these things don't jive. Why are we at the barn on this day and the barn on that day? Why don't we just knock everything out here? We're, we're at the school here. We're at the school there. I did this for like five or six minutes and they go, okay, you convinced us. And they told the first AD to get the shooting schedule. And we sat there from nine o'clock till just a little bit past midnight redoing the whole shooting schedule. And believe it or not, we wrapped Kidco on December 10th, the day the toy opened in the movie theaters. That's awesome. Uh, so you became kind of a, a child producer then? Well, if you want to call it that, I mean, it had no power other than the fact that I went to work every day prepared. I was a professional. I brought it. I, I, I brought my A game every day. And I told the other kids, I said, listen, you know, this is what's going on. If you need help, you need to rehearse. You want to do something after hours in the morning during breakfast? I don't care. I'll do it. Um, there's a courtroom scene that it's like a page and a half of dialogue that they cut down, of course, in the end. But I had most of it down, but I was getting stuck toward the end. And the guy that played my dad in the film, I knocked on his door one night and said, hey, I need your help. And he could have said to me, hey, kid, you know, what are you, what are you bothering me? Instead, ultra professional. His name was Charlie Hallahan. He's the guy in the movie The Thing with Kurt Russell whose head comes off the table and grows the legs and walks away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Charlie said to me, come on in. Let's do it. He's, and he, he said to me, he said, you bring it every day. He's like, I have never met a kid like you at your age that just is ultra professional. I said, hey, I got a goal in mind and I'm going to do it. And, and so he helped me. We got through it. That scene alone, that, that courtroom scene, was supposed to be almost two days of shooting. They were thinking maybe a day and a half of shooting, but for sure, you know, a day and a half to two days. And my diatribe was supposed to take all morning long from, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock until lunch. And we did four takes. We did four takes of, of me doing the whole diatribe, and we were done. I worked it out in the morning with the camera guy. I went and grabbed him and I said, hey, let's let's block this out because you're going to, you know, be with me going back and forth. I'm walking back and forth. So you get my pace and all that. He's like, no problem. Came out, got my pacing. They laid the dolly track down, put the dolly on there. We did it two times, me and him. As soon as everybody was in the courtroom, the Ron Maxwell was the director. And by this time, Ron had a little bit of trust in me. We were a couple weeks in. And he's like, okay, you know, we're going to rehearse. We got it. I said, let's let's shoot the rehearsal. I said, Ron, I got it. Let's just shoot it. And we were shooting film. We're shooting 35 millimeter. It's not cheap. It's not digital. And he looked at me and he goes, you got it? I said, yeah. He looked at the camera guy. He goes, you got it? He goes, yep. Okay, let's do it. And we did four takes. And to say the whole thing, we got done by lunch. Everything in that courtroom scene was done by lunch instead of a day and a half. That's something. Um, so you were a child actor. Were you able to go beyond when you, you know, you finally reached adulthood? You know, what kind of films did you do at that point, or were you able, or, or was it kind of just a, um, a, a desert after that because people associated you as a child in in acting? 
No, actually, I mean, it's kind of weird because I hit puberty and my face changed. I just sort of morphed into somebody else for a couple of years. So from the age of like 15 until past graduating high school, I didn't look the same. By the time I'd come out to California and I was reaching right around my 19th birthday, right before there, my face started to morph back into my face as a 12, 13, 14 year old. That I couldn't tell you why, but it's like I, I look at my high school graduation picture, it makes me sick. I'm like, Ugh, who is that guy? That's not me. But I mean, did I, I did some other stuff, you know, I did some other films here and there, nothing big. Uh, you know, never got a chance to do a TV series. Uh, I did a few guest appearances, 21 Jump Street, Rags to Riches, stuff like that. You know, but then work got sporadic here and there, and then you got to make a living, so you start doing other stuff. You know, I, I, I produced a really low-budget film, Zach, who played Scott Farkas, the bully in Christmas Story. He called me up. This guy had no idea what the hell he was doing. The guy owned a carpet cleaning business, and he wanted to make a movie. And Zach's like, you got to help this guy out, man. He really doesn't know what's going on. So he kind of got me into that. So I, I produced that. Um, that never saw the light of day. I, I think I might have a VHS copy of the rough, the rough cut. But I did a few other films and a couple movies with uh, Frank Stallone, Sly's brother. Uh, one picture called uh, Fear or Honor Betrayed. They changed the title on cable, whatever. Then we did another movie called The Garbage Man, which never got a U.S. distribution. I don't think of any kind. I don't even think it's been out on VHS or DVD for that matter. That was a cute picture. You know, but work, you get a little bit here and a little bit there. And, you know, if somebody's a fan, they, they want to hire you because they want to put you to work. I just I just did a film at the beginning of the year. Re, uh, re, uh, Christmas wrestling adventure, Christmas wrestling movie, something like that. You know. So, so what's your passion for uh, now? I mean, what, what, what floats your boat right now? Oh, I mean, I still enjoy acting. There's no question. You know, I mean, I've done it for friends for free. They say if you love something, you'll do it for nothing. I love it because I've done it for nothing. I've done it for Domino's Pizza and Gas. You know, would I want to produce or direct? Sure. I mean, I, I think that I have enough of an eye for it. Now it's just a matter of somebody coming and saying, hey, we've got this thing. Or, you know, if I want to particularly do something, then you got to go find funding and all of that, which I don't really know anything about. But, you know, after 43 years of hanging around showbiz, I kind of have an idea of what to do in almost any facet. I was, I was, as I said, you know, especially with Richard on the toy, I was very inquisitive. So I asked everything from the lighting guys to the sound mixer to the boom operator to the tech guys. I mean, I dabbled in everything. I mean, I got pictures of me sitting behind the camera while we're shooting the toy. You know, so... It was always something that uh, that I enjoyed, the whole process. Yeah, it sounds like you got a very rounded education in film, starting from an early age, so that, that's really cool. Yeah, um, you do over 100 commercials, 100 voiceovers, Broadway, off-Broadway, and then, you know, films and, you know, everything else. It's like, okay, you know, I, I have a good grasp on it. Am, am I going to become Quentin Tarantino tomorrow? Probably not. You know, but if there's something in particular that's that's sort of my thing, you know, I, I probably could do a pretty damn good job of it. What movie did you, do you like the most that you wish you were in? Hmm, man, that's a tough question. That I wish I was in. Oh God. You know, 
boy. You mentioned Tarantino. That's why I kind of follow that question because there are so many of his films that are just fantastic. And uh, you know, I would—I'm not an actor, but you know, if I were an actor, I would love to be in one of his films. Well, yeah, but I'm—I'm I'm thinking more of what role could I have played in something? You know, you know, Junior and Smokey and the Bandit, the Mark Henry role. Of course, he's much taller and older than I was at that time. Oh God. You know, I, I I love the musicals. I loved Yankee Doodle Dandy. I would have loved to have been, you know, George M. Cohan as a kid. You know, could I have done it? I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I've got a decent singing voice. It's not, I'm not going to, you know, up top Lady Gaga tomorrow, but, you know, it's okay. It works. I can carry a tune. You know, I, I, it's one of those questions where it's like, People have asked me kind of in a different way, like, if you could switch one of the movies you did for another movie, would you do it? And I'm like, no, because I had amazing experiences on all three of the bigger films that I did. And while I didn't get the money, like I could say Home Alone. Well, sure, because, you know, Macaulay made $20 million on the sequel. Okay, fine. But the, the experiences that I had were just so incredible that I don't think I would trade him for anything and I don't know that there's you know another film people said oh E.T. and I'm like but most people remember E.T. you know Henry Thomas was phenomenal as the kid I don't think I could have topped that performance not even close he was fantastic you know had there been TV shows yeah maybe you know the, the Ricky Schroeder role on Silver Spoons or you know maybe something else well, you, you mentioned, let's go back a little bit. You mentioned that you were involved in Off-Broadway and Broadway. Is mm -hmm. that something you consider doing again? Um, good question. I don't think I would want to lead role so fast because I don't think I'm, I'm prepared for that at this point. You know, a, a, a character, you know, a, a sidekick kind of a role. Maybe. Maybe I would do Broadway again. That was fun. Plus, it would give me a chance to be in New York for an extended period of time and you know, I mean, I live out in Southern California, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a Jersey, New York boy at heart. I'll always, my heart will always be there. Is your family in, in New Jersey? Oh, no. They're smarter than that. I moved out here, and eight months later, my father moved out here, bought a business that I introduced him to the guy. And a couple years later, my folks sold their house in Jersey, and mom came out here, and they've been out here ever since. My brother's out here, you know. You know, everybody, there's the curse words we have in the English language. I don't have to mention them, the four-letter curse words. I, I don't say them. I tell you my version, icy, rain, cold, snow. Those are mine. I can't stand them. Yeah. <laughs> and what you have a lot of it in, in, in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. 